You're listening to the Touch Em Up Podcast. I'm your host, Double M, and on today's episode, we have UFC on ABC5, Emmett versus Toporia. Preview, predictions, and breakdown. It takes place this Saturday from Jacksonville, Florida at the Star Veterans Memorial Arena with a phenomenal main event in the UFC's featherweight division between top 10 ranked contenders, including one former title challenger in the team alpha male powerhouse knockout artist and standout wrestler in Josh Emmett, taking on the undefeated contender ranked number nine in the division, Coming off of an extremely impressive win over Bryce Thug Nasty Mitchell, where he took his undefeated record and added to his own at 13-0, you have Ilya El Matador Topuria. So without any further ado, let's get this started and step into the ring. All right, everybody. UFC on ABC5, Emmett versus Topuria preview and predictions. This is going to be a great fight night. It's a very good card, and I know like a lot of the people will look at some of the main events and the overall main card and kind of crap on these fight nights, but this is not one to do that, man. This is a lot of very, very solid fights. Um, We're not going to break down every fight. We're going to skip the Trevor Peak fight because he got a new opponent, and I just don't think it's worth going into. And then we're also going to skip the... What is it? Hold on. There was one other fight we were going to miss out on. Or not miss out on, but skip... Um, oh, the Zalgas, Zuma Gulov, and Joshua Van. I'm going to be honest, I just don't feel like breaking down Zalgas again. Like, you know, his, his fights get canceled, his opponents fall out. Um, I'm not going to go through that again, and I'm not going to waste my time, considering that there is a there is potential that his opponent could fall out again. But, you know, whatever you're going to do, I mean, that is what it is. But looking at this card, man, it's got some pretty good matchups on it, aside from Emmett versus Taporia, which we know is going to be a firefight. You've got Tatsuro Taira and uh, Clayton Rodriguez in the flyweight division, which is a great fight, and I don't think Taira should be a minus 340 favorite. Jamal Emers and Jack Jenkins is a good fight. Tabitha Ricci and Jillian Robertson is going to be a good grappling matchup. Even uh, Loik Radzabov going up against Mateus Rebecki in the lightweight division Two powerhouses, two very good strikers with knockout ability. I think that's going to be a very good fight. Neil Magny and Phil Rowe, I'm excited to talk about that one. Brendan Allen and Bruno Silva, Gabriel Santos and David Onama after Santos came in and lost that split decision to a man who's potentially a future title challenger in the featherweight division in uh, Lerone the Miracle Murphy and made that fight very, very competitive. Uh, Austin Lane Jr. Tafa will get there, and then Amanda Hivas and Macy Barber. But let's get into it. We're, we usually like to do like the card breakdowns from the previous week and explain how everything went. But I just I I don't know. Like that's that's fine. But with so many fights to cover, I'm not going to do that. You know, I obviously will give the breakdowns, and if there's anything that really notable that happens, then I will talk about that. But we're here to do these predictions for the week, so we're going to get into it. First up in the middleweight division, you've got a battle between Cody Brundage and Cedricus the Reaper Dumas. Cedricus Dumas and Cody Brundage. This is an interesting one because I was a guy who backed Dumas in his UFC debut against Josh Fremd. I thought that he was going to be able to outstrike him. I thought he was going to be able to hurt him on the feet. I thought potentially he could wrap up his neck in a guillotine if he shot a bad takedown, if he would have been able to hurt Fremd. And he did some good work early. He's got a very good jab, and he does angle off with his jab. He's long, rangy, has a very long reach for the division. If you look at the stats for this fight, 
if it's going to load for us. Here we go. Um, he's got a 42, 79-inch reach compared to a 72-inch reach for Brundage. So he's he, and he's very good at using that reach. He likes to pump his jab out, lose, use long, rangy punches, straights, jabs. He'll obviously use hooks, switch stances. He's got a very good power back rear kick. The rear round kick to the body and to the head and low kicks are very, very powerful. And he knows how to use his length to measure, frame off, and keep the fighter away from him. Cody Brundage is the better striker, in my opinion. He's more technical. He has better footwork. I feel like he changes his stances a little bit more and kind of stutter steps his way into range to be able to set up that five into the overhand right like he dropped Adolfo Vieira with. The one-twos down the middle um, like he hurt Treshawn Gore with. I think he actually hurt him with a hook and then dropped him and jumped on him. But he's got power. He's got speed. He's got good explosiveness. I just think he's going to have a little bit of an issue with the length and reach of said Zidikes Dumas. I think Dumas is going to have success at range. And with Brundage, the one thing you have to think about is if he wants to have the most success in this fight, it's going to be using his wrestling, taking Dumas down, getting in the top position, landing some ground and pound, and potentially looking for a submission or a ground and pound TKO. But even in his first fight against Fremd, you know, Cedricus Dumas had some good work off of his back. He was able to use the half guard sweep to try to stand up, sit over to the one side, use the underhook on the other side, you know, lift, elevate, and then work his way back up to the feet. He knows how to tie up, but he's not very active off of his back. I don't really see him throwing up too many submissions against a guy like Brundage. And I actually think throwing up submissions would be a, a big mistake against Brundage because he can, you know, get out of the position, work his way, slide over to half guard, slide past the guard, go to side control, work into the full mount, allow you to give up your back and then flatten you out with ground and pound or potentially get to mount, work from the top position and land big ground and pound and look for a submission. I think the better fighter here is Cody Brundage, but the one thing you have to worry about is his durability. But then you look at Cedricus Dumas against Fremd. He got caught with a guillotine up against the fence, and I'm not going to call Dumas a quitter because I have no right to say that, but you know, he kind of gave up in that position. I think he knew that he was stuck on the ground and he wasn't going to be able to work back up. And, you know, Frem did catch him with some good shots on the feet and rock him. So you do have to take that into consideration as well. But I think Cody Brundage is the better fighter, but I worry about his durability and his gas tank because he will slow down. But we also saw, like we said, with Dumas, he can slow down in fights as well, especially if Brundage uses that very, you know, extensive wrestling, grappling, getting to the top position, working the takedowns, pushing Dumas up against the cage. You know, this is a tough fight and a hard fight to call. I think that this is a very tricky fight and one I wouldn't recommend betting on from either side. But I'm going to go with Cedricus Dumas here. I feel like that might be a bad pick, but I think he's going to be able to land something big on the feet against Brundage. And I think he'll survive the first round. I think Brundage will hurt him at, a, at one point, but he'll survive on the feet. And I think that Cedricus has a better chin than Cody Brundage, and that's something that I worry about. Impaired with the cardio where he pushes such a hard pace and he kind of just falls off, you know, in that second round. He always has a good first round and then falls off. If Brundage doesn't get him out of there in round one, I think that this fight goes in the favor of Dumas. But on the same side, Dumas doesn't have the best experience. And compared to high-level experience, Cody Brundage is much more experienced. So I think this fight is basically a coin flip. I could see either man winning. I do think we get a finish in this fight. From either guy, you know, I think either guy can lock up a sub. You know, Dumas got that beautiful guillotine choke on the contender series. We've seen Brundage use his submission game as well. I think either fighter can get a submission. Either fighter can knock out the other fighter. But I'm going to side with the length, reach, and power 
of uh, Sedikas Dumas to be able to tire out Brundage and knock him out in the second round. So give me Sedikas, the Reaper, Dumas to defeat Cody Brundage by second round TKO. All right, up next, we're going to go to a fight in the flyweight division. A very, very solid matchup here between Tatsuro Taira, undefeated in his professional mixed martial arts career, 13-0, going up against Cladeson Rodriguez, who comes back with a record of eight victories and two defeats. They both have similar opponents in CJ Vergara. Um, Cladeson Rodriguez lost a split decision to CJ Vergara. Tatsuro Taira was able to ground you know, ground CJ Vergara, take him down, work the trips, work the takedowns, work from the top position, you know, very good effectiveness in the body lock with his takedowns with trips, inside reaps, outside trips, you know, takedowns up against the cage, work from the top position, get into the full mount, you know, look to take the back. He's very solid and he can go on the back, look for a rear naked choke, transition to an arm bar. Um, he's very, very solid in that regard. And I think that Cladeson Rodriguez, we saw him have trouble with the wrestling and takedowns of Vergara, the pressure, the pace. I think that this fight is going to be a case of Tatsuro Taira having the much better grappling and being able to take down Clayton Rodriguez. And on the feet, like I think Taira is a decent striker. He has a good check hook, good one twos, good two threes. Like he's not completely out of it on the feet. He has decent kicks to the head and to the body. But the speed and power of Cladeson Rodriguez, I think if Tyra wants to win this fight, he's going to really have to rely on his takedowns, his pressures, his top control, you know, getting Rodriguez down to the floor, getting in the top position, landing elbows, landing ground and pound, and looking to set up a submission because I think the biggest glaring advantage that either fighter has, I think Cladeson Rodriguez has a big advantage with the speed and the power and the striking. And I think Tatsuro Tyra has a big advantage in this fight with the grappling the inside and outside trip takedowns, the body lock takedowns, the control from the top position. So it's really going to be striker versus grappler, even though I think that that's kind of unfair to say because this is a very, very solid matchup. But you have Tatsuro Taira as a minus 340 favorite to a plus 280 underdog in Cladeson Rodriguez. I don't think those odds are right. I think at the most, you should have Tyra at like minus 210. That's the highest this should go. And a plus 170, plus 180 for Rodriguez. So in case of the odds, I think it's a dog or pass possibility. Like if you're going to bet on this fight, the only way to bet it is Rodriguez on the money line at plus 280 because I think those odds are wrong. I don't think that those odds should be that high on either side. And I don't think Tyra should be that big of a favorite, even being an undefeated fighter. Um, I think on the feet, Clayton Rodriguez has beautiful switch kicks, beautiful low kicks, but his boxing is really where he has the most success. He has good switch kicks off the lead leg from orthodox, good right low kicks, right body kicks, can switch stances, land high kicks, very good one-twos, but his hooks are the best weapons in his entire game, in my opinion. He has a beautiful check left hook, the one-two down the center, the two-three. He likes to throw the hook and then pivot off. He's got very good range management with that lead hook, and I expect him to be very lead hand heavy. And if he catches Tyra on the chin in this fight, I think he can drop him, hurt him, and potentially get him out of there because we haven't really seen Tyra suffer from too much adversity in the cage. And Rodriguez, we saw him have adversity against Vergara where he got tired you know, but he was able to, you know, take the back, reverse some positions, work his way back up. And I think that we have seen more on the side of Rodriguez being able to go 15 minutes than we have on the side of Tatsuro Taira. But I do worry about the takedown defense and Taira's ability to use that top position to work to top position and control his opponents, look to set up submissions. He's very active from the top position, likes to take your back, look for a rear naked choke, can transition off into an arm bar, 
can attack the front chokes. I think that the grappling of Tyra is going to give Clayton Rodriguez a lot of trouble, but I wouldn't be a person to tell you to go bet on Tyra because I think the, the speed and the power of Rodriguez on the feet can give Tyra a lot of trouble and have him suffer through some adversity that we haven't really seen in his UFC career thus far with him being an undefeated fighter. Um, a lot of people are just going to side with the undefeated fighter because of the record. And I am going to pick Tyra, but it's because I think he has the weapons to take the fight where he needs to and to be able to slow down Clayton Rodriguez throughout 15 minutes. And I know MMA math doesn't always work, but we saw both of these fighters go up against CJ Vergara and you know, Rodriguez lost to Vergara. It was a very close fight, but he had more success in the striking. Tyra had much more success in the grappling, really controlled him from the top position, looked to set up multiple submissions, and eventually got the rear naked choke and really didn't allow Vergara to have much of any success. So I think that shows you that even though the grappling transitions, the sweeps, the top control, the takedowns were competitive with Rodriguez and Vergara, Vergara was able to really tire him out and out-wrestle him, work from the top, grind him out, and, you know, suffer through, or, I mean, get through the adversity on the feet with the beautiful striking and the powerful striking of Rodriguez. So, based on MMA math, even though I know it doesn't always work, I'm going to go with Tatsuro Taira to defeat Clayton Rodriguez. I think he's going to defeat him by submission. I'm going to go with an armbar. I think he's going to take the back of Rodriguez and then transition off to an armbar and get him out of there. But I could also see a rear naked choke submission from Tyra, but I'm going to go with a late second round armbar submission for Tatsuro Tyra to improve improve to 14-0. But if I told you taking a shot on the underdog wasn't a good idea, I'd be lying because I think if you're looking to bet it, like I said, the only way to bet this is to take a shot on the underdog in Clayton Rodriguez because of his speed, his power, and his beautiful technical boxing and switch kicks, round kicks from the rear leg, high kicks, He's very good on the feet, and he's got a lot of speed and a lot of power. So he has a chance in this fight, and that's why I think the odds are way off. But give me Tatsuro Taira via second-round armbar. All right, up next, we're going to move to the fight in the featherweight division between Jamal Emmers and Jack Jenkins. This is an interesting fight, and you know I see Jenkins as like plus 160, Jamal Emmers minus 185, minus 190 probably working his way up to minus 200 by the time the fight comes around. Um, I don't think those odds are correct, but I'm also a guy who's gone against Jamal Emmers a lot. Like I picked against him with Hussein Askabov, and that might be one of the worst picks I've ever made because I really just took that undefeated record and went off of that because I didn't know too much about Hussein Askabov. And there was tape on him, but a lot of it was highlights and there wasn't a ton you could look at. When you look at the records of these fighters, you know, 19 and 6 for Jamal Emmers, 11 and 2 for Jack Jenkins. I think that the biggest weapon for this fight is going to be Jamal Emmers keeping the distance and range using his jabs and those front kicks up the up the middle to the body, the lead teep kicks, the rear teep kicks, inside and outside low kicks, landing the one twos, sticking the jab in the face of Jack Jenkins, and be a, being able to manipulate and control the range. For this fight, it's going to be Jamal Emmers having to control the distance, control the range, and keep Jenkins at the space where he wants to. And then if they get into that close range, he's going to want to crash the pocket, get into the over-under position, get into the clinch, and take down Jack Jenkins, who we saw in his UFC debut, even though he won the fight, even though he had a lot of success with his striking, he was getting you know kind of outpaced in the later rounds. He was getting reversed on the floor, getting taken down, and he has takedowns and grappling in his own right. 
especially from the body lock position, does Jack Jenkins, but I don't think he has the grappling to compete with a guy in, in Jamal Embers. I think if this get if this turns into a wrestling and grappling match, I think Jamal Embers is going to be able to control Jack Jenkins the longer the fight goes. I think he's going to be able to get those takedowns, be able to work from the top position, be able to use those trips up against the cage inside the clinch, really look to push Jack Jenkins up against the cage, tire him out, and be able to outscramble him and control from the top laying good ground and pound. He has good elbows from the half guard and potentially look to set up a submission. The biggest grappling upside is on the side of Jamal Emmers. I think it's Jamal Pretty Boy Emmers. The biggest striking advantage on the feet is in the kicking game of Jack Jenkins. Jack Jenkins has a ton of leg kick TKOs. He even broke a few of his opponent's legs with his ability to land those powerful rear low kicks. And with a guy who's as long, rangy, and, you know, distance reliant as Jamal Emmers, I think that that body work, including the left hook to the body, you know, slipping his head off the center line, left hook to the body, right low kick, a.k.a. the Dutchie combination, the one-two, the jab, cross, hook, right low kick, jab, cross, hook, hook to the body, right low kick, cross, hook to the body, right low kick. I think the low kicks are going to give Jamal Emmers a lot of trouble. He has question mark kicks, decent boxing as well. He changes his stances a lot. Jamal Emmers does change his stance as well, but I feel like he fights more out of the orthodox stance than he does out of the southpaw. He seems a lot more comfortable in his traditional stance and orthodox. But I think Jack Jenkins has an avenue to win this fight, and I think the longer the fight stays on the feet, I would give the advantage to Jack Jenkins because I think if it stays a striking match, he'll be able to close that distance, slip his head up the center line of the jab, stutter, step in, land the low kicks, the inside and outside low kicks. And I think if he lands like four or five hard low kicks on Emers, he's going to slow him down, and he's going to make the takedowns a lot more telegraphed because he's going to have Jamal Emers needing to shoot those takedowns because he can't play with the striking on the feet and he does he won't have as much success with the striking game on the feet. This is a close fight and it's one that I wouldn't really recommend betting on either side. Like I think Emmer should be the favorite. I also think there's value in the underdog of Jack Jenkins because of his powerful low kicks, because of his striking. I think he can hurt Jamal Emmers on the feet and potentially get him out of there. He could even get a leg kick TKO, especially against a long, rangy, tall fighter. You know, with the three-inch height advantage, he's going to be that long, tall, lanky frame where he's going to be able to get inside, land those low kicks. And the best weapons against guys who use their length and reach is to get inside, crash the pocket, and either work inside the clinch, get into boxing range, or land those beautiful low kicks. And there's not many better low kickers in the game than Jack Jenkins. But competitive advantage, you know, experience advantage, that goes to Jamal Emmers. I think this is close. And, um, man, originally I was going with Jack Jenkins. But to be honest, I, I don't really know who I want to pick here. I think it could be, it could go either way. Um, I do think Emmers will have an advantage with the wrestling. But I'm going to side with the underdog in Jack Jenkins. I'm going to pick against Jamal Emmers again. Maybe I'm wrong here, but... I think Jack Jenkins will be able to slow down Emmers with those low kicks, which is going to make the wrestling more telegraphed. And I think eventually he's going to chop with those low kicks so hard that it's going to open up a shot up top and we're going to get a TKO from Jack Jenkins. He's going to work low and allow himself to open up the options to work up high. But those low kicks are very, very dangerous. And against a guy in Emmers with his long reach and his frame that he's built with, I think that's going to be a problem. But I also could see the wrestling, like we said, of Emmers giving Jack Jenkins a lot of trouble later in the fight and him being able to grind it out. And Emmers is good on the feet and he has good boxing as well. So it's really going to be, can, can Jack Jenkins crash the pocket, close the distance and work from the range he needs to. And I think he does. I think he slows him down with those low kicks and opens up a shot up top. 
for a second round TKO. So give me the plus 150, plus 160 underdog in Jack Jenkins to get his second win in the UFC over Jamal Emmers via second round TKO. All right, up next, we've got a battle in the women's strawweight division between Tabitha Ricci, who's ranked number 15 in the division, taking on Jillian Robertson. I think this is pretty much a 50-50 fight. And a lot of the times when you have two standout grapplers like a Robertson, like a Ricci, it turns into a striking match. And when I look at the striking between Jillian and Tabitha, I see that Jillian really doesn't like to get hit. Like if you really start to put that pressure on her and you start landing your punching combination, start landing kicks, it's not like she's going to come back and get into a war and start throwing with you. She's going to make the takedown attempts a little bit more telegraphed and she doesn't like getting hit on the feet. Now, I don't think Tabitha Ricci likes getting hit on the feet as well, but she's more comfortable than Jillian is in that aspect of mixed martial arts. And when I see two grapplers, like we just said, I feel like it turns into mainly a striking matchup. And I think the better striker, or at least the more comfortable striker out of the two are, or is Tabitha Ricci. So I think she's going to be able to outstrike Jillian Robertson. I think the jab's going to be stuck in her face. I think she's going to be able to land her one-twos. Now, does she look the best on the feet? No. Does she look that clean? No, she doesn't. But is she more comfortable and cleaner than Robertson? Yes. And will she stay in a striking matchup even if she gets hit? Yeah. Like, I, I, don't, I don't see her quitting on herself, and I see that quit in Robertson. I'm not saying she's a quitter in the cage, but I'm saying if you really can put that pace and pressure and start to land on her, then she's going to really resort to the wrestling and the grappling. Now, she has gotten pieced up before and then resorted to the wrestling and was able to submit her opponent like Priscilla Cachuera. So, yes, she can survive and she'll get it to the wheelhouse where she wants to get it and then be able to execute her submissions, her grappling, her top control, the back control, getting the hooks in, working from the top, getting into the mount. She's very, very good at that. So I think that this is, on the ground, it's 50-50. I would actually probably give the grappling advantage like purely to Jillian Robertson. I think she has more experience than Tabitha in the high level when it comes to the grappling. And I think that she is probably better technically than Tabitha. But based on the fact that Tabitha Ricci has the better striking, based on the fact that she's more comfortable on the feet, I feel like that will open up her grappling opportunities a little bit more, and it might actually make Jillian Robertson make a little bit more, or I, I'm sorry, make a few more mistakes on the floor, which can allow Tabitha Ricci to execute her game plan, control from the top position, and potentially lock up a submission of her own. And I'm going to go with that. I'm going to go with Tabitha Ricci to defeat Jillian Robertson via submission. I think she's going to make the difference on the feet. Her striking is going to be cleaner. She's going to land the bigger shots. And eventually, she's going to open up an avenue to lock up a submission, potentially taking the back for a rear naked choke, potentially falling off to the side in an arm bar or passing the guard and going to the far side on bar, but I'm not going to go with the exact same finish she had against Jessica Penny, but I think she's going to make Robertson super uncomfortable on the feet, which is going to make her grappling more telegraphed, allowing Tabitha Ricci to be able to spin to the back and execute a rear naked choke submission. So give me Tabitha Ricci, Baby Shark, I think is her nickname, Tabitha Baby Shark Ricci, to defeat Jillian Robertson via a first round rear naked choke submission. I think she gets her out of there pretty quick, to be honest. All right. Up next, a lightweight bout between Mateus Rebecki and Loik Rod Loik Radzabov. Radzabov's a former PFL championship finalist. 
He faced off against Haush Manfio and lost that title fight. Got to the championships again in the PFL before and lost that fight again. But in the UFC, he had a phenomenal fight against... Hold on, what was this guy's name? Is it Estevan Roibovics? Esteban Robitovich? Hold on, let's see. Let me make sure I get it right. Esteban Rybovich at UFC 285. That fight was extremely technical. Rodzabov was able to execute better grappling, better takedowns. The takedowns were there for him throughout the entirety of the fight. He got caught with some big shots by his opponent in Esteban, and I actually cannot wait to see him back. Let's see when Esteban Rybovich is going to come back, if he has another fight booked. Uh, No, nothing since March of 2023, but when El Gringo comes back, Esteban Rybovich, that's a guy you have to keep your eyes on 100%. Um, Great fight, and if you haven't watched that fight, go watch Loik Radzabov versus Esteban Rybovich, you know, prior to this fight night, because it was a phenomenal fight. But again, getting into the breakdown, Loik Radzabov versus Mateusz Rebecki. This is going to be a striking matchup. And, you know, Mateus Rebecki has a lot of power. You look at the Nick Fiore fight, beautiful left power kicks to the body, left overhands, right hooks, one-twos down the middle. The only thing is with Rebecki is that, you know, I know a lot of people are very high on him. You know, I picked against him with Nick Fiore. Or no, I think I picked him, but I picked him to finish it inside the distance. And, um, you know, it went to a decision. He's 17-1. and You know, but to be honest, he doesn't impress me that much. I'm going to be completely honest. And I think everywhere that Rebecki has success, I think Radzabov is a little bit sharper. I think he's a little bit more technical. He's got a very good overhand right. And in facing a southpaw like Rebecki, he's going to loop his punches. He's going to go right hook, overhand left, right hook, left uppercut, one, two down the middle, jab, left overhand. And he does loop his punches pretty, you know, they're pretty telegraphed, but he has some decent speed. But I think Loik Radzabov is faster. I think he's sharper on the feet. I think he sets up his his punches a little bit better than Rebecki. Rebecki's just kind of a powerhouse. He likes to push you back. He likes to bully you. He likes to overwhelm you. And it's not the most technical approach. He has good takedowns, good control from the top, but he's not very active from that top position. If he gets the takedowns, he'll kind of just sit there and try to win the rounds on control time. But if your opponent's active off of their back, if they work their way back up to the feet, if they go for submissions off of their back, I feel like he could get caught in a good submission. And when it comes to the later on in the fight, you know, in the mid-half, in the midway point of the second round into the third round, I think that Rebecca is going to slow down fighting a guy like Loik. And I don't see Loik slowing down as much. I think they both will slow down, but I think Loik can push a harder pace. He'll push the takedowns more. He'll push the wrestling offense a little bit more. And like I said, on the feet, he's got decent striking, good one twos, good left hook, a jab left hook, good right low kicks, good overhand, right? I would say the best shot from him is going to be his overhand. And I think against Rebecki, Rebecki has the power to hurt Radzabov. We heard, we've seen Radzabov get hurt by Estevan. You know, he got hurt with body shots. And I think that that's something that we're going to see Rebecki look to implement. He's going to go right hook, left power kick to the body. You know, one, two up top and then rip some hooks to the body, come back up top to the head. I think we're going to see body work from Rebecki. But I think the wrestling, the takedowns, the footwork... And then the overall sharper fighter on the feet is going to be Loik. I mean, getting to the PFL finals for the championship twice, even though he didn't win it, that's still a big feather in his cap. And to be honest, man, I think that 
I think a lot of people are going to be picking Rebecca here, but I'm not. I'm going to go with Loik Radzabov. I just feel like he's better. I feel like he can push a better pace throughout 15 minutes. I think he'll have the, the higher cardio and the more output, especially with the wrestling and the takedowns and the grappling in that third round to be able to push harder than Rebecca. Now, he has gotten hurt, so yes, Rebecca could chin him, catch him with a big shot, and hurt him. I think this is going to be a phenomenal fight. I would definitely recommend you tuning in to Rebecca versus Radzabov, but when it comes to a pick, I'm going to go with Loik. Like I said, I think he's sharper. I think he has better footwork. I think he sets up his punches a little bit more. They're not as telegraphed, and he has the wrestling to fall back on. He can scramble with the best of them. I think he's more active off of his back. Even if Rebecca does get those takedowns, he'll be able to work his way back up look to threaten with submissions off of his back. Even though Loic does slow down, I still feel like he has better cardio than Rebecca. And for a 17-1 fighter, yes, he can push a pace. Yes, he throws with heavy, heavy power. So maybe if Rebecca dials it back a little bit, he can set up his power shots better and potentially hurt Loic, like we saw him got hurt, get hurt against Esteban, or Esteban Rybovich. So yes, we've seen on the tape that Radzabov can get hurt. Rebecca has gotten hurt. I mean, even in the fight with Nick Fiore, he was getting caught with elbows, stepping in, up elbows. And I just feel like Loik's going to be the better fighter over 15 minutes, and I think he'll win a decision. So give me Loik Radzabov to defeat Mateus Rebecca as the underdog via 29-28 unanimous decision. I just think he's going to do better throughout the 15 minutes, and he's the sharper fighter. I think he's better than Rebecca everywhere. Even though I think Rebecca has more power, I think that Loik has enough power to make Mateus respect him. All right, and now we move to the next fight up that we're going to break down in the welterweight division between Randy, Rude Boy Brown, taking on Wellington Terman. I know what everybody's going to say about this fight. They're immediately going to come in and say Randy Brown's longer. He's more technical on the feet. He'll be able to keep it at his range and distance, pick apart with one-twos, good jabs, left hooks, good head movement, you know, chop with the low kicks, the front kicks to the body. And keep Wellington away from him, stuff the takedowns, and cruise his way to a decision, which is normally how Randy Brown fights. And I could 100% see it going that way. But I also think that Wellington Terman's striking has gotten better, especially in his last fight. It looks like working with Glover Teixeira, he's become more comfortable in the boxing range. Now, being at such a reach disadvantage against Randy Brown, he's going to really have to crash the pocket. Kind of like what we talked about earlier with the Jamal Emmers fight. The opponent has to crash the pocket. Jack Jenkins has to crash the pocket and land the low kicks. I feel like Wellington Terman has to crash the pocket and look for takedowns from inside the clinch, look for trips, backside trips, inside reap takedowns, you know, body lock throws, and also getting into the clinch and being able to break off and land decent boxing combinations. The thing that I will say about Wellington Terman is his striking has gotten better. He looks like he got more comfortable on the feet, especially in his last fight against Andre Petrosky. Now, again, you have to take that into consideration that those were two grapplers mainly going off in a striking matchup, but Wellington Terman's striking looked good against Andre Petrosky. Good jab, good lead teep kick, good rear teep kick to the body, front kicks up the middle, jab left hook, one, two, left hook to the body, jab, cross, left hook, right hook, left hook, right hook, jab, cross, hook, hook, cross, hook, cross, hook. He has good boxing combinations, and he seems to be working more on his striking with Glover Teixeira. And I think that will pay dividends in this fight against Randy Brown. But if you really break down the stats, 
6'3 for Randy Brown, 6 feet for Terman. It's going to be a 3-inch height advantage for Randy Brown and a 6-inch reach advantage. So we know what Randy Brown's going to want to do. Keep him at a distance, use the lateral movement, use the fakes and feints, pop the jab, double jab, triple jab, 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 right hand to the body, jab, cross hook, cross hook, jab, jab, right hand, right hand, left hook, pivot off with the left hook, jab, check hook, pivot off, jab, jab, front kick to the body, lead teep kick, jab, teep kick, jab, right head kick. I mean, he's going to be wanting to pick apart Wellington Terman. Being able to stuff the takedowns, use the whizzer, use the sprawl, spin to take the back, defend the takedowns, fish for your underhooks, go to the over-under position, get the double-unders, turn him up against the cage, back off back to the center of the cage. That's what Randy Brown's going to do. Randy Brown does have finishes, and I could even see him potentially locking Wellington Terman up in a guillotine choke. Since he's so much taller, so much longer, and has so much range, when you got guys with those very long arms, they're able to snatch up guillotine chokes from really awkward angles. And I think if Wellington shoots a bad takedown, we could see Randy Brown lock up a Darce choke. We could see him lock up a guillotine and potentially submit the much more well-rounded grappler in Terman. But I also think that Randy Brown shouldn't be this big of a favorite because we've seen him have durability issues and we've seen him get hit. And I'm not saying that Wellington Terman is a better striker. I'm not saying he's more technical, but he can get into those those you know, close range shots and land decent power in his hooks, his uppercuts, his one twos, those good front kicks. If he's able to get past the range of Randy Brown and get inside, I think there is a world where Wellington can hurt Randy Brown on the feet with the left hook, with the one, two, with the right hook, with the jab cross, left hook, right hook, you know, with the front kicks to the body, stepping down one, two down the middle, his striking isn't terrible. He's not like a, a grappler where all he can do is grapple and he has no striking. He got a lot more comfortable on the feet in the fight against Andre Petrosky. And that's what you have to take into consideration when breaking this down. I think that there is a, a place where Randy Brown can be hurt on the feet by Wellington Terman, but obviously the sharper striker with better distance control, better range, better technique, better weapons from the long ranges is Randy Brown. So when it comes to a pick, I'm going to pick Randy Brown to win by a decision, you know, fighting how Randy Brown usually fights with the jab, double jab, right hand, left hook, front kicks to the body, inside low kick, use move left and right using the lateral movement, fakes and feints, pivoting off, jab, jab, right hand. Like all the combinations we talked about, I think Randy Brown will be able to dictate the range. But if they get into boxing range, don't be surprised if Terman catches Randy Brown on the chin, hurts him, wobbles him, and locks up a submission. Even in the fight against Jack Della Maddalena, Randy Brown was hurt and got submitted by a guy in Jack Della who is not known at all for his submission grappling. So if Wellington can get in that boxing range, use that head movement, the bob and weave style like a Mike Tyson, close off the distance and hit Randy Brown on the chin and hurt him, if he hurts him and jumps on him, Wellington Terman can jump on him and lock up a submission. Like that's 100% the, like possible. Um, man, like I want to go with Randy Brown, but there's something telling me that, that I should go with Wellington Terman. Like something's telling me that Terman's going to find a way to pull this off. I'm going to go with it, man. Give me the plus 205 underdog. Give me the big underdog in Wellington Terman to be able to hurt Randy Brown in a boxing exchange, drop him, jump on him and get a submission. I'm going to go with Wellington Terman to defeat Randy Rude Boy Brown via a third round rear naked choke submission. Just something's telling me and like watching the tape against Petrosky, do I think he's the better striker? No, but I think he can find ways to land those shots in close range if he closes that distance, potentially off the break in the clinch. And I think Randy Brown's not going to respect his striking and he's going to get clipped, get dropped and get subbed. So give me Wellington Terman as the plus 205 underdog 
to defeat Randy Brown via club and sub rear naked choke in round three. All right, up next, we have the headliner of the prelims in a fight that I'm extremely excited to talk about. Kind of a mirror match in some ways between the longtime veteran of mixed martial arts, the number 11 ranked welterweight in Neil, the Haitian sensation Magni. I don't know if that's still his nickname, but it was for a long time. Magni coming into the fight with a record of 27 victories and 11 losses. Going up against the up-and-coming guy fighting out of Fusion XL alongside Mike Beast Boy Davis in the Fresh Prince, or Philip the Fresh Prince Rowe, who comes into the fight with a record of 10 victories with only three defeats. This is, man, this is a very, very tough fight to call, and it's a it's kind of a mirror match. Like, I see a lot of similarities between the way that Magni fights and the way that Rowe fights. The only difference is I would say Magny's a little bit more comfortable in the wrestling department, but at the same time, Philip Rowe has good takedown defense and decent ability to work his way back up to the feet, even if he does get taken down. He can threaten with submissions off of his back. He can threaten with sweeps. He can threaten with triangles, arm bars, and looking to set up submissions and even working up to a hip using the, uh, you know, shrimping his hips and using the underhook to stand up to his feet using the tactical get-ups, like he's he's pretty decent off of his back. And I think that a lot of people are expecting Magni to resort to his wrestling here like he did against Daniel D-Rod Rodriguez and potentially be able to lock him up in a submission. I don't think it's going to be easy for Neil Magni to completely out-grapple Philip Rowe in this fight like it was for him to out-grapple Daniel Rodriguez. And I think that, you know, you look at the stats, 6-3 for Neil Magni, 6-3 for Philip Rowe. 80-inch reach for Neil Magny, 80.5-inch reach for Phil Rowe. The biggest difference in the striking on the feet is the volume of Neil Magny, but the power and technique of Phil Rowe. Phil Rowe is so good at finding ways to use his distance and range, pop the jab, one, two down the middle, pop the straight right hand, feint the jab, throw the straight right. The straight right hand of Philip Rowe is a piston. He can land that on your chin and hurt just about anyone. And if he smells blood, he's going to go for the finish. One, two down the middle, he hurts you. Left hook, right hand, left hook, right uppercut, right uppercut, left hook, straight right. Six, three, two, three, two, three, two, three, six, two, three, two, three. Like he's going to put that volume on you. And he is more dangerous on the feet than Neil Magny. He can tie you up in the clinch, land elbows, land knees in the clinch as well. Now, at the same time, he does get hurt. Like we saw him get rocked with an uppercut from. Nico Price, but eventually he was able to work his way back into that fight and land a big shot that hurt Nico Price and get him out of there in round three. In a second round, that was very close. But again, I think Phil Rowe could have been up two rounds to zero going into that third one. And then Nico Price had some success. Like I said, he dropped him with that uppercut. He hurt him. You know, he was landing good shots up against the cage. He was pushing him back. But the thing is with Nico Price, if we're comparing Nico Price to Magni, Magni's much more technical. Magni's much more cerebral. Magni uses his his reach, his length, his distance more than Nico Price. But at the same time, Nico Price has a lot more danger on the feet than Neil Magni. And when this is a kind of a mirror match, the volume is going to go to Magni. You know, I would I would give him the wrestling advantage, but I don't think it's going to be a whitewash. And I think the power and technique of Phil Rowe's boxing is what's really going to make the difference here. I think he's going to touch Neil Magny with that right hand, touch him with the jab, jab, right hand, one, two. And I think one of those right hands is going to hurt Magny, get him up against the cage. And I think Phil Rowe's actually going to put Neil Magny away. I love Phil Rowe in this spot. And I know Magny's the veteran. I know Magny has fought better competition. 
I know Magni has much more experience, and if Magni's smart, more than likely, he'll use that jab to control the range, and then when Phil Rowe tries to get his boxing going, he'll shoot those takedowns, push him up against the cage, and look to work with the takedowns, controlling from the top. If Magni's smart, he'll use his wrestling more in this fight, because I feel like if he strikes with Phil Rowe at a distance, Phil Rowe's going to piece him up. Like, Phil Rowe will knock him out or TKO him if it stays a, a pure technical boxing matchup, man. I've been a big fan of Phil Rowe. I picked him against Nico Price, and I was very confident. Yeah, he had some issues in that fight and, you know, almost gave me a heart attack, but he was able to catch him, hurt him, and get him out of there. And even in the fight against uh, Gabe Green, he lost that fight via decision, and I know it was a unanimous decision, but that fight was very close, but it was the power of Gabe Green that made the difference. And we don't really have a Neil Magny that has huge low kick power, huge punching power, where he's going to hurt Phil Rowe and really put it on him to get him out of there. I think Phil Rowe has all the upside in this fight as long as he can stop the wrestling and not allow Magny to push him up against the cage and the over-unders and slow him down. But I'm going to go with the underdog here in Philip Rowe, man. I really like Philip Rowe in this spot. I think he's plus 130, plus 140. As an underdog, give me the underdog in the Fresh Prince Phil Rowe all day in this fight. I think the boxing of Phil Rowe and the power that he possesses with the clean technical boxing that he has is going to hurt Neil Magny early, and he's going to jump on him and get him out of there. Give me Phil Rowe to defeat Neil Magny via second-round TKO. I know Magny's not a guy who really gets finished with the striking. It's more him getting finished by elite grapplers with takedowns and submissions, but... I think Phil Rowe's going to piece him up on the feet, and I think we see Magny get finished here. So give me Phil Philip Rowe or Phil the Fresh Prince Rowe to defeat Neil Magny via second-round TKO. And if we look at the odds for this fight, I'll pull it up real quick. I know Magny is the favorite. Oh, uh, Let's see. Let's see, let's see. Plus 140 underdog for Phil Rowe. Yeah, so give me plus 140 for Philip Rowe to defeat Neil Magny by TKO. I love this fight. I think it's a great fight, and I really think Phil Rowe's going to show up here. All right, now we move to the main card with the first fight on the main card being between Brendan All-In Allen and Bruno Blindado Silva. This fight is very tough to call because I feel like I was 100% certain that Andre Muniz was going to be able to defeat Brendan Allen in that three-rounder, which eventually was turned to the main event after Ryan Spann and um, who did he fight? Who was he supposed to fight? Ryan Spann and I, I forgot, but the fight got canceled last minute, like the day of, and you know everything fell apart, but... I think that Brendan Allen really surprised me in that fight because he was able to submit Andre Muniz. He outstruck him on the feet, even though the striking was pretty close, but he was able to take him down, you know, catch the kick and sweep his leg, get to the top position and eventually submit him. And that's, I think, the last thing anybody thought Brendan Allen was going to be able to do. And if you look at Brendan Allen, he's on a big win streak right now. He's 21-5 and five in professional mixed martial arts, but lately in his UFC career, I think he's on a four-fight win streak. Let's see. Yeah, four-fight win streak with a rear naked choke over Sam Elvey, a unanimous decision over Jacob Melkoon, where a lot of people thought he lost that fight, a rear naked choke submission over Christoph Jotko, and a rear naked choke submission over Andre Muniz. So 4-0 and in his last four fights, 
three victories coming by way of rear naked choke in one decision. The last time he lost was that TKO to Chris Curtis in December of 2021 in round two. But I think Brendan Allen against Bruno Silva, I think this is a very tough fight for Brendan Allen. But at the same time, let's look at Bruno Silva, a guy who went back and forth life and death with Alex Pereira, landing some good strikes on the feet, you know, stumbling Pereira at certain points, being able to track his movement against the cage when he uses that long arm reach to frame off and circle away, to land big overhand lefts, big overhand right hooks, left hooks, right hooks, jab, overhand, big hooks from Bruno Silva. And you look at Bruno Silva's last fight against uh, Brad Tavares. That was a fight where I thought Brad Tavares was going to be able to out-technique Bruno Silva and eventually just pick him apart, out-kickbox him, and win that fight via decision. And Bruno Silva shut me down real quick when he pushed him up against the cage, landed a big overhand that hurt him, and then was able to switch from southpaw to orthodox and land the left hook into the right hand and drop Brad Tavares up against the cage. Bruno Silva doesn't have the best technique, but if he smells blood, he's going to hurt you. If you're on your back and you have him in the guard, he can knock you out from inside your guard. He can knock you out from just being in that top position. Bruno Silva has natural power, and he's going up against a guy in Brendan Allen who, yes, I think he can definitely submit Bruno Silva. I think he can out-technique him on the feet. We saw him get dropped by Gerald Mearshart and eventually submitted in a fight where I thought Bruno Silva was going to run through Gerald Mearshart. I feel like Bruno Silva is a guy that you really have a difficult time getting a read on because some fights he shows up and looks great, and some fights he looks like he shouldn't even be in there. Like the fight against GM3, although it wasn't a, a fluke, I feel like Bruno Silva just didn't show up for that fight because he should have easily put Gerald Mearshart away. But he didn't, and he got finished, and he got dropped with the striking and the boxing of GM3. If you're getting dropped by GM3, then Brad Tavares should technically be able to outstrike you. He should be able to hurt you. Brendan Allen should be able to outstrike you. you know. But then he goes up against Alex Pereira and has a very competitive fight where it's basically a striking matchup the entire time, even though Silva gets some takedowns. And he goes toe-to-toe with Alex Pereira, one of the best strikers in the world, and you know goes tit-for-tat in the striking. So it's very difficult to get a read on Bruno Silva, but if the fight stays on the feet, I think the more technical striker is Brendan Allen. The guy with the better kickboxing overall is Brendan Allen. The jab, left hook, right, right body kick. One, two, left hook, right body kick. Jab, right body kick. One, two, right high kick. I mean, just the showcase he put on against... Punahele Soriano, he looked like one of the best middleweights in the world, but you got to worry about the chin. You got to worry about the durability. I think he has better grappling than Silva, but if Silva's able to, you know, get out of a submission attempt from Allen and wind up in the guard, I think he can hurt him and knock him out with ground and pound from the top. I think this fight is very, very difficult, and this is a fight that I wouldn't bet on from either side. But based on the durability issues of Brendan Allen, even though he's on a win streak and I keep picking against him and he keeps proving me wrong. I'm going to go with Bruno Silva here, man. I just think that he's going to find a way to land on Brendan Allen's chin, hurt him, and get him out of there. I know he got knocked out by Chris Curtis. You know, we've seen him get hurt in some of his other fights. Even Sam Elvey was landing some big shots on uh, Brendan Allen early in that fight before he got him out of there. But I think the better grappler and better jiu-jitsu artist is definitely Allen. I think if Allen can keep him at kicking range, land the body kicks, the left hooks, the one-twos, you know, if he can hurt Brendan or uh, Bruno Silva on the feet and then use his wrestling and jiu-jitsu and work from the top position, I think he can definitely submit him. So I think if you're on the side of Allen, you would go with Allen to win by submission because I think there is that jiu-jitsu upside where he can out-grapple Bruno Silva and lock up a sub. But at the same time with the durability issues and, you know, you hit him on the chin clean, 
you can hurt him because his defense is not the best, even though it's gotten better. I think Bruno Silva can exploit that defense, switch his stances, southpaw to orthodox, make Brendan Allen kind of second guess where the shots are coming from. And I think he's going to catch him with a big right hook, hurt Brendan Allen, jump on him, and get him out of there. So give me Bruno Blindado Silva to defeat Brendan All-In Allen via a first-round TKO. I think he's going to swarm him pretty early and knock him out. But again, this is a fight I wouldn't necessarily recommend betting on unless you want to take the unders. I think it does go under, whether it's Brendan Allen locking up a sub, catching him on the feet, rocking him and submitting him, or Bruno Silva catching Brendan Allen and knocking him out. I think the fight does go under two and a half, but I'm going to go with the plus 155 underdog in Bruno Blindado Silva to be able to catch Brendan Allen on the chin in round one and knock him out. So Bruno Silva, round one, knockout. All right, next up on the main card, we have a battle in the UFC's featherweight division between David Onama and Gabriel Santos. This is a tough one, man. This is a very, very good fight. Santos came into the UFC with a short-notice debut against one of the top contenders in the featherweight division in Lerone the Miracle Murphy at UFC 285. Or UFC 286, I'm sorry. And that was a fight where a lot of people thought Lerone Murphy was going to easily walk through Santos. And Santos made it very close to the point where Lerone did win the fight, but it was a split decision. And coming in on short notice with a debut, you know, sometimes you come in on short notice or you have that debut magic where you look amazing in your UFC debut, but then you kind of fall off. But I don't think that's what we have here with Gabriel Santos or Gabriel Santos. I think that he has the skills to be a very, very solid contender in this featherweight division. Going up against David Onama, formerly trained under James Krause, which we know the whole story about James Krause. Onama is a powerful striker. He has decent grappling, decent wrestling. You know, even if he gets taken down, he has decent ability to work his way back up to the feet. But the biggest red flag or biggest hole in his game is stuffing the takedowns, getting taken down, and his cardio. If you look at the fight with David Onama and Nate the Train Landwer, I thought that that was a fight where Onama was going to easily be able to catch Nate Landwer and knock him out, like hurt him bad and put him out cold. And yeah, he dropped him. He hit him so hard. It looked like he got hit by a sniper from across the building, but he was able to survive and eventually just slow down David Onama. Now, Onama's a guy who's not going to quit, but sometimes his cardio quits on him. Even in the fight against Nate Landor after he was dead tired after the first round where he almost got him out of there, you know, he still was in there. He was still throwing with power. He was still trying to measure with that lead hand and land that big overhand, big hooks, big straight punches. Everything that Onama throws has extreme power in it. And if Gabriel Santos or Gabriel Santos plays on the feet for too long and doesn't keep his hands up, I think Onama can shin Gabriel Santos. He has the power. It's natural power that this guy has where he can knock out probably just about anybody. Big straight punches, big left hooks, big right hooks, big overhands, but he's very good at measuring with the lead hand and kind of walking you in, measuring and landing the big power rear hand, the big power right hand, big left hook, big uppercut. Like he has that power, big overhand. And if Santos is is a little bit too confident after his performance against Murphy, I do think Onama can catch Santos on the chin and hurt him and put him out. But I think the wrestling and most importantly, the counter takedown attempts of Gabriel Santos is going to give Onama a lot of trouble. I think he's going to get Onama to overcommit on his punches, overextend, and then Gabriel Santos is going to shoot underneath, get the takedowns, control from the top position, you know, look to land ground and pound. I think Santos can strike with him on the feet as well. He's got very good ability to move left and right. Really solid body kicks, good low kicks, good straight punches. 
but I don't think it's the smartest idea to really play on the feet for too long with a guy who has as much power as David Onama. I know Gabriel Santos came into the UFC undefeated at 10-0, lost his debut even though it was a split decision, but I think that that fight showed us a lot, but you can't take 100% stock in that performance because sometimes guys just have a really good performance in their debut and then kind of fall off, kind of like Lando Venata against Tony Ferguson, came in, debut, looked amazing, almost finished Tony, got submitted, and then kind of fell off. We could see that with Santos, but I don't think we will. I think he's very technical. He's got a lot of finishes on his record, good submission attempts, good takedowns, good ability to take the back. You know, even against Lerone Murphy, he was able to take the back and then fall off to an arm bar where he almost could have got him out of there. Murphy got out of it. He jumped up right into a triangle. I think that Santos is the real deal. But again, like I said, you can't take too much stock in the performance in his UFC debut. But out of his 10 victories, he's got seven wins by way of finish. Three TKOs, four submissions. Only loss was that decision, but a KO with body shots, a KO with head kicks, um, a rear naked choke submission, a lot of rear naked chokes. So if he gets the back of David Onama, I think he will be able to submit him. And I'm going to go with Gabriel Santos. I would worry a little bit about the power and the technical striking of Onama, but Onama isn't even really that technical. He just has really good straight punches, but when he really gets it going, it's a lot of looping hooks, uppercuts, overhands, because he has that God-given ability with the power that he possesses. But he does slow down. He does tire out. And I think that Onama has the opportunity to get him out of there in the first round. But the longer the fight goes, the counter takedowns, the wrestling of Santos, the body kicks. I think we're going to see a lot of left kicks from southpaw, right kicks from orthodox, right low kick, switch southpaw, left body kick, jab. As Onama tries to counter, he gets the takedowns. Even though Onama has some submissions, maybe he could catch him in a guillotine off a bad takedown attempt. But I really think that Santos is going to be able to perform here. He'll have a close first round where it's going to be scary for him, and maybe he gets knocked out. But if Onama doesn't knock him out in the first round, based off the cardio issues and you know the the slowing down that he has, and the you know the takedown defense holes in his game and the wrestling defense holes, I'm gonna go with Gabriel Santos here. I like him a lot. I'm gonna go with Santos to win via a second round rear naked choke. I think he's gonna slow him down, eventually take the back, get the hooks in, and submit David Onama. So give me Gabriel Santos to defeat David Onama via a second round rear naked choke submission. All right, up next is a fight that we're not going to spend a whole lot of time on in the heavyweight division between Justin Tafa and Austin Lane. Austin Lane came off the contender series. He originally got knocked out on the contender series by Greg Hardy before Hardy made his UFC debut. He had a win on the contender series in the last season where he was able to get those takedowns or um, I'm sorry, able to really stop the wrestling and then work in the guard of his opponent and pass the guard and land some big ground and pound to get the opponent out of there. Um, going up against Justin Taffa, brother of Junior Taffa, who is a one-hitter quitter knockout artist, kind of like a Mark Hunt. He reminds me a lot of a Mark Hunt where he doesn't have the best wrestling, he doesn't have good takedown defense, but he has the ability to get off and land them big power hands, the overhands, the left hooks, the right uppercuts, the lead uppercut to the overhand, you know, uppercut to overhand and just mix up his power punches. And he's not a big volume striker, but he can knock you out. I think if he catches Austin Lane on the chin, he will knock him out. But I also think there is a weapon, or I guess I should say an avenue for Austin Lane to win this fight. I think if Lane pushes Tafa up against the cage and is able to avoid the big power shots early, 
I think he'll have a big advantage in the wrestling. I think he can take Tafa down, control from the top position, potentially get him out of there with some ground and pound. But it's just, can he stop Tafa from being able to catch him on the chin and put him out? Because if Tafa lands one big bomb, he will knock out Austin Lane. Like, he will put him out. He's got that power. He's got the technical ability to land that big shot and knock out Lane. But if Lane can close the distance, avoid the power, get the takedowns, and really work his wrestling top control jujitsu, he could submit Junior Tafa. He could knock him out with ground and pound. I'm sorry, Justin Taffa. He could knock him out with ground and pound. He could lock up a submission because a lot of these big heavyweight strikers, they usually just rely on their power and their ability to land big low kicks, big overhands, good straight punches, and just big knockout punches. And normally they have a deficiency in their grappling. And I think that's what we are going to see here. If Lane can close that distance, if he can get in the, on the inside work those takedowns and try to land big ground and pound or potentially lock up a submission, I think Austin Lane can win this fight. I think this is a fight where you don't bet it either way. I mean, I don't like betting heavyweight MMA as it is, but I'm going to go with Justin Taffa to be able to land that big knockout punch in the first round. I just think we've seen you know Austin Lane get knocked out before, but I do think, like I said, there is an avenue where Austin Lane wins this fight, uses his takedowns, uses his wrestling, controls Tafa from the top, potentially locks up a submission, maybe an arm triangle, a rear naked choke, or just ground and pounds him after tiring him out due to the wrestling, and, you know, can win that fight via ground and pound or submission. But I think he's going to get caught early by Tafa and get knocked out. But again, this is a fight I wouldn't bet. The best bet would probably be fight doesn't go to decision, but a lot of the times in heavyweight MMA, when you don't think the fight goes to a decision, it ends up going to a decision. So I would say I'm rooting for Austin Lane to win because I just think nobody's expecting it. And I definitely see avenues for him to win if he can resort to the wrestling, grappling, and ground and pound. But I'm going to pick Justin Taffa to be able to catch Austin Lane, you know, work, walk into range, boom, catch him with a big overhand and knock him out. So give me Justin Taffa to defeat Austin Lane via first round knockout. Hello? All right, and up next, we move to the co-main event of the evening in the women's flyweight division between top 11-ranked contenders in the number 9-ranked Amanda Hivas going up against the number 11-ranked Macy the Future Barber. Listen, I think this is an interesting fight, but you know what you're going to get with Macy Barber. Barber came in, and a lot of people thought she was just this knockout artist who had big power in her hands, big power in her kicks, and she could knock out people. A lot of people thought she was exactly what her nickname is, the future. But it turns out that, you know, she kind of had that halted a little bit after she lost as a minus 1,000 favorite against Roxanne Mataferi, who was able to take her down, who I think she got injured. Excuse me. She got injured in the fight. But she was getting taken down, getting out-wrestled, controlled from the top, ground and pound, you know, taking the back, everything. She was getting dominated by Mataferi in a fight where people thought Barber was going to walk through her. And I think that soured a lot of people on Macy Barber. Macy Barber fought Miranda Maverick. Everybody thought that Miranda Maverick won the fight. Macy Barber got a decision. A lot of the fights Barber ends up winning, their decisions where a lot of people thinks that she, think that she shouldn't have gotten that decision. Very close fights, a lot of the times going to the scorecards. But she has decent striking. It's just she lacks volume and overall output on the feet. Against Amanda Hivas, who do I think is the more powerful striker? Macy Barber. Who do I think is the more technical striker? Macy Barber. Who do I think has the better upside to finish the fight on the feet? Barber. We've seen Amanda Hivas get hurt on the feet by Viviana Araujo. She got hurt, you know, got rocked. 
We've seen her get knocked out by Marina Rodriguez. That was a fight where I picked Marina Rodriguez, but a lot of people didn't pick her. They didn't have that much upside on her, but she eventually knocked her out. And that was kind of the coming out party for Marina Rodriguez. But I also think on the floor with the grappling and the jiu-jitsu, I think Barber is probably the better wrestler, but I think the better overall grappler, the better submission artist, the better control from the top, and the bigger threat on the floor is going to be Amanda Hiva. So as long as she can avoid the big power punches of Macy Barber on the feet, then I think you have a, a, a fight where Amanda Hiva should win this fight. She should be able to outgrapple Macy Barber. She should be able to take her down, control her from the top position, potentially look to land ground and pound, look to lock up a sub. I think the overall more well-rounded fighter on the floor is 100% Amanda Hivas. I think the more powerful striker and more technical striker on the feet with better defense is Macy Barber. But Amanda Hivas is getting a little bit more comfortable on the feet to where she will, you know, exchange in the striking matchups and stuff. But she can get hit and her chin isn't the best. I believe she does have durability issues. So if Barber can close that distance and land a big bomb on Hivas, I think she can rock her, knock her out and get her out of there. But at the same time, I think when it comes to the overall more well-rounded fighter and just the overall higher activity throughout the 15 minutes, it's going to be Hivas. You look at Barber, a lot of the time she'll win these decisions. People didn't think she should win, but it's because she lacks volume. She'll stay on the outside, fake and faint, fake and faint, fake and faint, maybe land one body kick, one head kick, fake and faint, uh-uh, 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 uh-uh. But she doesn't do much. She doesn't actually do a lot. It's a lot of, you know, staring in the mirror, looking to set things up, but not actually executing what you're looking to set up. And I think that's going to be a problem against Hivas. I think Hivas will land the more volume on the feet. I think there will be some grappling exchanges. I think Barber will take her down, but I think Hivas will be able to reverse potentially a scissor sweep, a half guard sweep, you know, and work her way back up to the, or work her way to top position and overall get the more top position, better top control could lock up a submission, but I do think it goes to a decision. And I'm going to side with Amanda Hivas. But a lot of the times when you think Macy Barber loses a decision, people don't, or the judges end up giving it to her in a split decision. I think the best bet, to be honest, would be betting this fight to be won by a split decision. I mean, I know the props aren't out yet, but, you know, we've seen Macy Barber in really close fights where, again, we thought she lost and she ended up winning the decision when people thought that she shouldn't have. So maybe you bet the fight to go to a split decision. I think there's avenues where Barber can win, but at the end of the day, I'm going to side with Hivas because I think she's the much more polished grappler, and I think she's going to be more active on the feet, even though I think Barber has the better technique and power in finishing upside on the on the feet. But I am going to go with Amanda Hivas to win via split decision. Best bet would probably be fight to be won by split decision because I do think you always got to keep that in the back of your mind when you're looking at a Macy-Barber fight. But the pick is Hivas by unanimous, or Amanda Hivas by split decision. All right, and now we move to the main event of the evening in the UFC's featherweight division between Josh Emmett, the former featherweight, ugh, former featherweight title challenger, taking on the number nine ranked Ilya Topuria. Topuria versus Emmett, man. This is a big test for Topuria, and Topuria is a huge favorite. Minus 340, minus 350. I don't think that's right. I think the highest you should have Taporia as a favorite is like a minus 190, minus 200. But I understand why there's a lot of love coming in on the side of Taporia. But if you look at Taporia's last fight against Bryce Mitchell, I believe he was like a plus 110 underdog. And I cashed pretty big that night. I won like 12, 13 units in bets on that card. And the main anchor of a lot of my picks was Taporia because I knew he was the better fighter compared to Bryce Mitchell. 
Josh Emmett and, and Taporia, both guys have knockout power. I would say the bigger one-hitter quitter knockout ability is Josh Emmett. I would say the better wrestling and takedowns is going to come from the side of Emmett. I would say the more explosive striker is Josh Emmett. But I would say the more technical fighter overall, the better use of fakes and feints, the better use of range management, distance control, lateral movement, angles, is going to be Ilya Taporia. He's the much, ugh, he's the much sharper more methodical fighter. I would say Tapori is more methodical. Emmett is more explosive and reliant on those big knockout punches. Emmett does have good wrestling, but I don't think he's really going to be able to take down Taporia. And even if he is, I don't think Emmett's going to resort to the wrestling in this fight. He might resort to the over-unders in the clinch and maybe try to strike off the break with elbows, uppercuts, overhands, and things like that. But I think if anybody uses the wrestling from an offensive perspective and actually tries to go for takedowns, I think it's going to be Taporia just to throw off Josh Emmett. He might shoot some takedowns. He might go in the over-under position in the clinch, hit a lateral drop takedown like he did against Yusuf Salal. He's got good throws, good judo tosses, good um, Oshigatis, I think they're called, good lateral drop takedowns, You know, good takedown defense in his own right. But I think that Ilya Taporia is the much more well-rounded fighter when it comes to mixed martial arts. And I think he's much more technical and sharper in the striking game than Josh Emmett. I don't really see either fighter using a ton of kicks. I think that if anything, Taporia might use some low kicks, but he mainly likes to box, but he uses that lead hand, kind of moves it around in a motion. He, he lives up to his nickname in the Matador because he's trying to lull you in. He's using that head movement, trying to slip off the center, right hand, left hook to the body, left hook up top, slip back. Slip off the center line, come over the top of your jab with the right hand with the pull counter. Slip, right hand, left hook, left hook to the body. Right hand, left hook, overhand, right like he knocked out uh, Jai, uh, Jai Herbert with. But we have seen Ilya Taporia get hurt. Even before he finished Bryce Mitchell, Mitchell was landing some decent strikes on him and he was kind of just moving, circling away in one particular you know direction. If he circles in one direction and kind of gets lazy against Emmett, Emmett will crack him with a big left hook. Emmett will crack him with a big overhand right. And Emmett definitely has the possibility to catch Ilya Taporia with a big shot and knock him out. If you think that Emmett can't knock out Taporia, then I don't know what you're talking about. And I don't know why you're breaking down fights. Because even though I think Ilya Taporia is the much better fighter, even though I think he's much more well-rounded, Emmett wins these fights against guys who are, are supposed to be a lot better, a lot more well-rounded, a lot better fighters, a lot more technical. And you know why he wins it? Because of his power and his explosiveness. I mean, just look at the fight against Shane Burgos. I think there are some similarities between Burgos and Taporia. Look at the fight with Josh Emmett and Shane Burgos. Burgos was out striking Emmett every single round, but he caught him with a switch stance, straight left hand, a switch jab that dropped him, an overhand right that dropped Shane Burgos, an overhand left switching to southpaw, Switch jab, overhand right, faint, switch southpaw, overhand left. I mean, he was catching him on weird angles with these shots and dropping him. And he won that fight pretty much on one leg. But he's not a guy who's going to win rounds. He's not a guy who's really going to win off volume, you know, and putting combinations together, even though that is something that I think Emmett has gotten better at, is putting combinations together, putting things together, finding ways to land the big shots and eventually landing on your chin and dropping you, knocking you out or hurting you. Even in the fight that he lost to Yair Rodriguez, he did hurt him at one point and drop him. You know, he wobbled him, hurt him, and then was able to get in the top position for on, on the floor and try to land some ground and pound, but Yair was too ex too explosive off of his back. A lot of people are going to think, well, he lost to Yair Rodriguez. You know, Taporia is going to walk right through him. I do think Taporia wins this fight, but I also think you have to take into consideration that Yair 
is the best kicker in the division. And Yair is much more of a kicker to the body, to the head, switch kicks, spinning kicks, round kicks, two-touch roundhouse with the lead leg to the rear leg. He's a much more kick-heavy fighter than Taporia ever has been or ever will be. Taporia is going to engage in the boxing. He is going to engage in the slip counters, in the pull counters, pull back, right uppercut, left hook, double jab, overhand, right, jab, left hook, right hand, one, two down the center. And he will exchange in the area where Josh Emmett has the most success, which is his boxing. But we have seen Emmett get dropped before. We have seen him get rocked. We have seen him get hurt. He had some trouble against one of the best boxers in the division in Kelvin Cater. That was a fight I thought Cater definitely won. Three rounds to two, but they gave it to Josh Emmett. It was a close fight, though, and Emmett definitely landed the more impactful shots. But we have seen Emmett get hurt. We have seen him get caught. And I think Going up against Taporia, I think Emmett's live here. Like I said, I don't think the odds are, are right at all because I think Emmett has that one-hitter-quitter ability where, you know, we saw in the Jai Herbert fight, he was getting hurt with straight right hands, one-twos, a lead head kick, a right hand into a pullback lead head kick that dropped Taporia as he tried to throw a hook. Like, we've seen him get hurt. We've seen him get rocked. But I think there's a big difference between Taporia or between Jai Herbert and Josh Emmett because you know, the reach advantage, the length, the distance, that's not something that Josh Emmett's going to have in this fight. But what he will have is the power and the explosiveness. But Taporia is probably, or in my opinion, he is the, the sharper, more technical fighter. He has better counters. He doesn't wind up as much as Emmett, so he should be able to catch him in between the power shots. But if Emmett catches Taporia on the chin with a big power shot, a big left hook, a big overhand right, a switch stance overhand left, that switch jab that he caught Burgos with, he can knock out Ilya Taporia. Like, he is live in this fight, but I do think Taporia is the much better fighter. Like, I think he will pick him apart on the feet. I think he's going to attack the body of Emmett, so Emmett might look to, you know, level change feint to an uppercut. I think we're going to see Emmett try to land some uppercuts and knees because he's going to expect Taporia to work the body shots with the left hook to the body, right uppercut, you know, knees, jab to the body, right hand up top to the head. But we will see Emmett try to go with uppercuts, overhands, switch jabs, and things like that. If he employs the wrestling, I think he might have some success, but Taporia's takedown defense and get-up game is very good. And um, even though he got taken down by Mitchell at the end of the first round, you know, his takedown defense until that point was very good. And I think this is close, but I am going to side with Taporia. You know, I've always been a big proponent of Taporia. I was heavy on him going into the Bryce Mitchell fight, but I do think he has the weapons and the power to hurt Josh Emmett, but I don't think it's going to start off with shots to the head. I think he's going to hurt him starting off with shots to the body. I think we're going to see Taporia slip, come back with a left hook to the body, a left hook up top to the head, double jab up top to the head, a right straight to the body, jab, right uppercut to the body, left hook, one, two, left hook to the body, faint the cross, get the outside angle, left hook to the body, left hook up top to the head. I think we're going to see a lot of body work, potentially front kicks, to the body, knees to the body as Emmett tries to close the distance, breaking off the clinch with elbows. But eventually, I think Taporia will find that range. He will get more comfortable, and he will be able to outstrike Josh Emmett and land, you know, the straight, more clean punches, the cleaner, straighter punches, more technical punches over the wide-looping, powerful shots or in between the wide-looping, powerful shots of Emmett. But I think it's going to be the body work that really sets up the knockout blow up top. I think he's going to hurt him with a left hook to the body and then land a big right hand on Emmett and knock him out cold. But Emmett is live, but I am going to go with Taporia. So give me the number nine ranked Ilya El Merador Taporia to defeat Josh Emmett via... Uh, ooh, do I go second, third? It's a five-round fight. 
I'm going to go with a third round knockout. He's going to hurt him with that left hook to the body, come up top with a right hand. I think it could be similar to the way he knocked out Jai Herbert up against the cage with the right hand, left hook to the body, following up with another right hook. I think he will hurt him to the body and then explode with that right hand and knock out Josh Emmett. So give me Ilya El Matador Topuria to improve to 14-0 and win this fight via a third round knockout, moving himself one step closer to title contention and handing Josh Emmett back-to-back losses. So Ilya Taporia, third round knockout over Josh Emmett, starting off with the body shots and working up top to the head. But that's going to be it for my preview, predictions, and breakdown of UFC Fight Night Jacksonville, UFC Jacksonville, Emmett versus Taporia, which is an early card. It takes place Saturday, June 24th at 2 p.m. from the ViStar Veterans Memorial Arena in Jacksonville, Florida. You're going to be able to see it on UFC on ABC. The card is back on ABC not ESPN. You can get this podcast anywhere you get your audio podcast. That includes Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Anchor, Breaker, Stitcher, and many, many more. You can catch this podcast that'll be uploaded in full and probably in broken down segments on my YouTube channel, which is the same name as the podcast in the Touch Em Up podcast. Leave a review for my podcast on Apple Podcasts, anywhere you can leave a review. And also, if you want to, you can donate via the link in the description to my PayPal to make sure we can continue to provide the best content for every listener and watcher on YouTube of the Touch Em Up podcast. I'm your host, Double M, and I'm out. Enjoy the fights this weekend.